Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day and the sunshine. We thank you for the, the sunshine of your love into our lives. We pray that you will, will pour out your love, your truth, your presence upon us today, that we can be warmed by, by your presence and know that we've been with you today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly, The Christian Life, and the lesson title this week is Community. And if someone would read for us the first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson, humans are social beings. Humans are social beings. God could have created a hundred million perfect human beings as standalone, who would each pursue his or her own independent goals. Instead, he first created one male and one female and said that it would not be good for man to be alone. The first couple was to complement each other, and they were to multiply and create a community of family members and eventually larger social units. What do you all think about the ideas expressed in this first paragraph? Any thoughts about it? Anything trigger in your mind? What he could have done and what he decided to do. What he could have done and what he decided to do. And that's, it triggered my mind that way, too. And, and, and the first thing I asked was, well, how many humans did God directly create? And how many humans have been created by other humans? No thoughts on that? Yeah, you think about this. Um, if God had made hundreds of millions of humans individually as standalones, as, as the court suggested he could have done, would the way humans relate to each other be different than the way we relate now? Would our connection to one another be different? Would we somehow be connected differently if we were 100 million standalones versus all descendants of one parentage? Does it connect us in a different way? What are the implications of that? How does, how does God's design for humanity link us together? We're a family. We're related. You mean we're all related in here? Yes. Mm-hmm. Isn't that scary? <laughs> Maybe for me. <laughs> but no, and you think about that. It shouldn't be scary. But as we think about this... Um, and as we think about the linkage as God designed it, first off, does the linkage as God designed it tell us something about God? How he designed our humanity to be connected? Does it inform us in any way about how God designed his universe to be connected with him, per se? Does that inform us? God is a God of relationship. And as Adam and Eve, you know, two separate beings come into unity of love, giving of themselves to bring forth new life in their image. Now, whose image was Adam and Eve created in? God. So are we learning something about how God is, it comes together in the unity of perfection and love to bring forth creatures to be connected to them? Is, is it telling us something about God's design for how the universe is to be connected to God? And all of us are to be in a loving relationship with our first parents if sin hadn't entered. But why don't we experience that kind of unity right now with each other? We're born of an opposite nature of God's. And God's nature is love, so the opposite nature is selfishness. We're born selfish. Um, what does Satan want to do to God's universe? How so? 
Does, does this Hayden really want to destroy it? Do you really think he wants to, to actually wipe it out so there is no universe? Is that what he wants to do? He wants to destroy mankind. Or does he want to control it? Yes. Controlling legions. Does he want to be in charge of it? Or does he want to destroy it so he has nothing to govern, be in charge of, have power over? Or does he get his thrills over domination and control of, of others? He would like to take the place of God. Now, the results of Satan's work is destruction. There's no question about it. Um, and how is he doing that? Isn't he the source of division? Isn't he fracturing, severing, breaking connections? Isn't that what, what Satan has been doing? Right in heaven in the beginning, did he start a division amongst the unity and the angelic host? And that division spread when mankind severed the connection with God. Um, how did that happen? How did Satan get this fracturing, this severing to, to cascade through God's creation? Told lies. Told lies about? No, he convinced uh, our first parents to transgress. And by doing so, their nature became fallen, and they passed that fallen nature, that rebellious nature onto their offspring. Hence, we're born inclined to transgress and rebellion against them. Yeah, he, he absolutely convinced them to transgress. And they were the second intelligent beings in the universe he convinced, the first being the angels to transgress. And, and how did he convince them? What was the core issue that he convinced Adam and Eve to transgress over? That God couldn't be trusted. He severed their trust in God. And then that led them to act to protect self. Can't trust God to protect him and watch out for him. God's not good. God's not looking out for him. God's a power monger. God's, God's trying to keep him down. God doesn't want him to advance to their highest state of development and be like God himself. Uh, so trust in God was undermined. So when we believe lies about God, you mentioned back there that, that the nature was changed. How does a lie believe change our nature? Not so much when Adam when Adam transgressed. So Eve's nature wasn't changed by her disobedience. I was referring to the progenitor of the race, Adam, when he mm-hmm. chose to transgress. Mm-hmm. Then his offspring became corrupt. Mm-hmm. Because they couldn't have offspring with, with just one of them. They had to have both together. So they had to have both. If, if Adam would have transgressed and not Eve, well, then we wouldn't have... Yeah. You see? You wouldn't, there wouldn't be any children in that relationship either. Yeah. So, what is that cascade? How is it that lies change our nature? What is the nature of God? Well, if you, if you believe a lie, um, it's the same as believing that something actually happened that's true. And so, if, you, if somebody actually did something to hurt you, you would fear that person. Well, if you believe a lie about that person, but he really didn't hurt you, if you think he did, you'd have the same reaction. Okay, I like that. So, um, God's nature is love. Adam and Eve were created to operate on perfect love. What does a lie do? Husbands and wives. If you are in a loving relationship with your spouse, and somebody close to you comes to you, and I've said this in here before, but for those who are visitors, somebody comes to you like your own mother, your own father, your own brother, your own sister, somebody you also love and trust, and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair. And they not only tell you this lie, they bring digitally enhanced photos they made on a computer showing your spouse in the arms of another. Even though your spouse is loyal and faithful, if you believe the lie that your spouse is cheating, will something inside you change? Yes. Lies believed break that circle of love and trust. And that's what happened. And then broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness, the change in nature. I no longer trust you, God. I have to watch out for myself. And so it was the lies that were believed, and Satan is the father of 
Lies. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will... What does truth set you free from? Lies. And we're one back to trust and in trust we open the heart and we have, he says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts and perfect love casts out all fear. So lies believe break the circle of love and trust resulting in fear and selfishness. Truth believe destroys lies, opens the heart to love and love casts out fear and selfishness. However, just to shed a little light on that particular concept, it's not until transgression takes place does the nature become corrupt and you divide between the creator. This is more of a question than a statement. There's no question a certain amount of angels would work to a certain extent buying into Satan's lives, but yet they did not transgress and they did not become fallen angels. So um, it's not until transgression takes place. What is transgression? Violating the known will of God sounds pretty good. And how do we do that? How does that, what does that? What does that look like? I mean, you, I agree with you, transgression. But how we define transgression, most often people have defined it by a behavioral action. But that's not how Jesus defined it. Jesus defined it as, you say if you commit adultery, behavioral action, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Transgression happens in the mind before it happens in the behavior. So with the broken trust in God, we've already chosen to break away from Him. We've already broken our allegiance to Him in our heart and mind before there's behavioral action. That's where the transgression happens in the heart and mind first. Later behavior manifests that. So I agree with you, it's transgression. But it's not simply a behavioral act, it's what's happening in the heart. Wendell. If you're angry at your brother. Same thing. The same thing. The whole, whole thing about being angry or, you know, it actually it was a mind thing. That's right. Happens in the mind first. That's where sin happens. Jesus said, um, it's from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth the evil stored up in him. It's, it's the behaviors are only manifestation of what's happening in the heart and mind. And sin happens in the character, in the heart and mind. And then the behaviors will manifest that. Eating of the fruit was only a result of what had already happened in the mind. That's right. They wouldn't have eaten the fruit if they were still in trust with God. Exactly well said. So, this selfishness, this broken trust, resulting in fracturing of God's universe, resulting in fear and selfishness in our hearts and minds, is humanity. How is this manifested in humanity today? How do we see it in society today? Satan's methods, principles in the heart of man. How do we see it manifested? Survival of the fittest. And how do we see it manifested? Selfishness. Selfishness. So racism, sexism, elitism, Phariseeism, terrorism, war... Spouse abuse, child abuse, political attacks, gossip, extortion, coercion, jealousy, bullying, cheating. I mean, aren't these all the examples of what it looks like? Isn't that what it looks like? Yeah, that's what it looks like. So the next question then. Do any of these problems that I just listed occur in the church? You laughed. Is the church supposed to be part of God's plan to reverse all that that I just said? How so? How is the church supposed to reverse that? I think it's most important that people understand to cure the root of the problem. If a person is stealing, and that's certainly wrong, there's no question about it. A person eating incorrectly, that's wrong. You've got to deal with the nature that's causing them to do that. So if you fix the root on the problem. The fallen nature has got to die. You have to be born again. That's how the church needs to deal with that. I think that's very well said. 
Changing the heart, renewal, regeneration, recreation. Very well said. Yes. Rather than problem-centered, it would be Christ-centered. So rather than problem-centered approach, it's Christ-centered approach. Preaching Christ and Him crucified, as Paul said, which Christ's mission, he said his mission was to reveal the truth about his Father, to let people come back into the knowledge of God. Um, This is out of a book called Education, page 154 regarding the question of the church's role in reversing all this. It says, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. What is the work of the church? To disprove what? A lot of times people say things so many times it almost becomes a cliche. You know, like familiarity breeds contempt. And so many times people say Christ has been crucified. That's what we need to preach. However, if you think about that concept, what it means is Christ has to die because we're transgressors. And we need then to understand we need to stop transgressing. We need to address the root of the problem that causes us to transgress. That's salvation. Yet, I see so many people, and in the Adventist church particularly, unfortunately, everybody's saved. But yet we're not addressing the root of the problem. It's okay, I'm not as bad as this guy. So, you know, besides I I claim justification, I'm in. Got my ticket punched. We need to address the root of the problem. We need to let Christ save us from transgression. What do you all think about that? Any thoughts? Comments? I think lukewarmness is a real problem. Lukewarmness is a real problem. I think that he would, he would agree. Uh, other other comments? Yeah. I think we're, we're talking different language for the very same thing. If you heal the mind, then you have corrected the problem. Right. Healing the mind, healing the heart, regeneration, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, writing the law on the heart and mind, uh, the new covenant experience, having the mind of Christ, taking the heart of stone out, putting the heart of flesh in. The Bible's full of metaphors saying the same thing, transforming the inner man. So, so yes, I, I agree. It's a transformation, though. You may desire that kind of character, and you may want to live like that, but you're constantly fighting the evil that's also still in you. I mean, we're, I mean there's almost like a dual kind of Satan's there working on your mind and Jesus is there working on your mind and you have to choose every day who you want to listen to. It doesn't just automatically go away when you accept Jesus. Yeah, and the roots, the roots are fear and selfishness. They're the roots, if you think about it. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. That fear is part of the infection of sin, yet perfect love casts out all fear. And you think about the selfish things people do. It's almost always driven by fear and insecurity. Uh, they cheat because they're, they're afraid they won't make the grade and won't pass. They, uh, they, they steal because they're afraid they won't have food or won't be able to, to pay their bills. They, they um, you know, lie. They do all the things that we do is almost always driven by fear and insecurity. Needing to protect self. Needing to watch out for self. And the more the pressure comes on, the more we're likely to act in selfish ways because the fear gets more intense. As I used the example of some young people last night, um, you want to know the pressure of how deeply rooted that, that fear and self-preservation urge is within you? Imagine for a moment somebody's holding your head underwater and you have a knife in your hand and they're holding your head underwater trying to drown you. 
Now imagine 15 seconds, 30, 40, 45. The longer you're underwater, what happens to the urge? Does it get more intense to act out and stab them? That's that urge to save self. You understand on the cross, Christ was tempted in every point just like we are. His life was being crushed out of him. He didn't have a knife in his hand. He only had to think it. He he had the power of the whole universe in his hand. He could wipe them out in a thought. And he was tempted to save himself, but he didn't. He overcame that very carnal instinct that we have to act in self-interest by perfect other-centered love. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. This is what he destroyed. And that's why it says in in, uh, 2 Timothy that at the cross, Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. How did he destroy death? He destroyed the basis of what breaks the circle of love and restored love perfectly back in humanity, in his human brain. Understand, his victory was done in a human brain. It wasn't his divine nature that got the victory at the cross. He got the victory in his humanity at the cross. Did he not? Yes. That's powerful to think about. And that victory he offers to us, and thus if you read about those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, says these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. What does that mean? We're not afraid of what happens to us anymore. Fear has been cast out. We're not willing to hurt others to protect self anymore. We love God and others more than self. This is a supernatural transformation, putting the law of love back in the heart where it was designed to be, that regeneration, rebirth, changing that carnal nature that God has planned for us to do. I sort of put it like this, and I think it's probably... I have a tendency to try to quantify things. And, um, for instance, when was the last time you made a deposit in the bank? Do you think about robbing the bank while you're in there? You shop in a store and you're not rolling the place. When a person gets to the point in every aspect of his life where there is no temptation to transgress, he can be assured that the Lord, because of what he did for us at Calvary, is saving that man. Or he can secure against temptation. Or he can be assured that he has a very easy, non-conflictual life. Because it's when we're in the position of stress and trial that the lower nature actually comes forth. When we live a life of ease, we have everything provided for us. When we don't have any struggles in life, it's easy to be gracious and kind, isn't it? But when you're in Nazi Germany and you you have the opportunity to protect some Jews that are being persecuted at the risk of your own family, when there's only one morsel of food to be shared amongst a group of people, what do we do then? And there was a book written by Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. He was an observer in the Nazi concentration camps. And he observed there were two types of people, basically, that, uh, that were in the camps. There were those who selfishly did everything they could to protect themselves, including informing and turning over and, 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 and aligning themselves with the powers of evil that were persecuting. And then there were those in the camps that were altruistic, going out of their way to sacrifice, to help others, sharing what they had. And so the point is, it's in circumstances of trial and tribulation that we have opportunity, through God's grace, to overcome the fear and selfishness in our own hearts. It's those opportunities where we have the greatest opportunity. That's why Paul in the Bible says, you know, be thankful for trials and tribulations, because through these, it's opportunity for character development and growth. All right, so back onto the church. What did the apostolic church look like? Was, there, was it a selfish church or a really loving church? A, a church of unity or church of, of division? 
the apostolic church. It was a church of unity, yeah, of, of sharing. It was a kind of a communal church. But what happened to that church? Over the course of time, something changed, and the church lost its first love. What happened? How did the church's, church's I guess, mode of interacting change? Did it change? Well, obviously, because Paul even states that even while he was alive, the Greek flows were entering in with false doctrine. False doctrine primarily about... Jesus. About God. That's what it's always about. What is life eternal, Jesus said? To know, to know me. To, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now sent. John 17, 3. The war we fight, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that we use divine weapons to demolish something. What do we demolish? Strongholds. Strongholds that set themselves up against? The knowledge of? Of God. Paul in Romans chapter 1, six times, says that the wrath of God comes because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They preferred images made with their own hands to the, to the truth about God. And the minds became darkened, the minds become futile, the minds become depraved. It's always about God and the truth about Him. Satan's attacks have always been on God because if we don't trust Him, we won't open the heart to Him, will we? So he has to lie about God, and it's the lies we believe that keep us afraid and keep the heart closed. And it's the truth about God that opens our hearts, and when we open the hearts, the Spirit comes in and transforms and heals us. So it's always been that attack. Can the church today be conduits of God's healing, love, truth, methods, if we continue to hold to lies about God? Or put another way, um, can the church experience the healing power of God if we don't know the truth about God. It's kind of the same thing, put another way. So are there concepts currently promulgated in Christianity today that obstruct God, the flow of God's love in, in our hearts? There's no question. In fact, right in the book of Revelation, there's obviously a problem with the latest in church. So what kind of concepts would you see from your experience that have made it hard for you to to open the heart and experience the flow of God's love. Any, anybody want to share any things that you've heard taught in Christianity that have been a barrier to the flow of God's love? Lukewarmness. And how is lukewarmness taught as a virtue? It's not. It's extended as the church as, as an excuse for... So, what, so lukewarmness isn't actually taught in the church? Well, it is, but it isn't. So how is it taught in the church? talk about people being bench warmers instead of actually being in full ministry and putting their lives into what God wants to do. So preachers are preaching for more bench warmers. No, it's the example we set as a congregation. Okay. So, but the point is, what is it that's leading to bench warming? What is the teaching that leads people to be bench warmers? That's what I'm getting at. I, I agree with you that it's happening, but there's something being taught that leads to that. And that's what we're trying to dig out. children that from a very young age in many of our churches. They're taught to sit and be quiet and listen to the program. Well, what they're taught is that they're saying. There, there you go. Because they have professed faith in Christ. See, what, what, what Satan has got the church to believe, you see, what we went through a moment ago, did you hear all the metaphors that the gospel message is a message of regeneration, transformation, recreation, renewal? That's the gospel message, isn't it? Amen. Satan has got the church to exchange regeneration for legal pardon. See, get your pardon in heaven, get the blood pardon stamped by the record books, you are now legally saved. What does that do to regeneration and creation? And most people feel secure and safe with their legal pardon, and they have exchanged that 
exchange the real promise of a new life for some legal transaction that occurred in a record book in heaven. It's no different than the Jew who sacrificed an animal. And he walked off and felt he was safe because he simply killed the animal and claimed the blood of the Messiah to come. But the Seventh-day Adventist simply says, I, I believe Jesus died for me. And then goes and professes salvation. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear that justification must lead to sanctification, which is overcoming the desire to transgress. Are you sold that God's right and would you rather die than transgress? And we actually teach that it's impossible for us to overcome, to to have new hearts and right spirits. And rather, we're just going to need to be covered by Christ. What do you all think about that comment? That one of the things that leads to lukewarmness is the idea that you will never actually have be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a victorious life. You can never really overcome. You will continue to live a life of sin. We just live under the grace of forgiveness and legal pardon, but we don't live a life of victory through God's grace. Does that lead? The Apostle John says that's Antichrist. Yes, yes. I'd have to go a slightly different direction. Um, I spend a lot of time with kids, which is great because that's probably about where my mentality usually runs. And you, you can explain something to a 10-year-old, you've probably got to figure it out. And when I talk to kids about salvation and about relationship and about God and about the cross and everything else, a lot of stuff we talk about in church makes no sense. But they can understand love and connection and relationship and, and they can understand a parent's love and I would have to say that we don't teach in many cases um, the, the assurance of salvation we actually teach a lack of assurance which is why we focus on behavior because we're desperately trying to find some way to, to, to claim um, our right to salvation when we go completely backwards and our kids grow up largely thinking that they need to prove something when indeed what they need to do is hang on to a relationship with the person who died for them. And if they get that clear once, everything else will fall along because what would I want to do in my life for the person who loved me so much that was willing to die for me but to do everything that he wants me to do, not to save me, because I want desperately to please the one that loves me. And if, if I have the relationship, if I have made the connection with him, if I reach out to the one that's reaching out to me and keep that connection, then I am no longer worried about trying to justify my salvation by my behavior. I just do it out of pure love, and it's beautiful. And I can teach a kid that. I really like that a lot, and, uh, and, and there's power in that. Um, and, and now I'm thinking about the child who's heard this, who's growing up in an organization, and then they're, as they're growing and maturing, they're, they're moving past the age of five, six, seven, eight. They're in high school now. They're in academy. And then new ideas start coming along in that relationship with Christ, and they've, and they've got that solid, loving relationship with Christ, and then they start hearing about the Father. And they sure are glad that they have a relationship with Christ to protect them from the Father. And they sure don't want to stand in in the time of, of, of the end without an intercessor with the Father. Because the Father is just and, and, and must rain down proper judgment on sin. So we have that loving relationship with the Son. But you follow what I'm saying here? Oh, yes, we got it all wrong. Yes, I know. 
Yes, and, and so, yeah, we need to teach them that loving relationship, but don't we need to also teach that when you have that loving relationship with the Son, everything you know about Jesus is true about the Father? Amen. Isn't that what we need to be sharing with you? And if you have any ideas anywhere that somehow that Jesus is one way and the Father is a different way, there's a lie in the, in the mix. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so one of the things that then undermines that kind of relationship that you've described is when we come in and talk about what the Father's going to do. We talk about the day of wrath and judgment, when He's going to rain fire down. Or, when I was a kid, I remember children's story was my favorite time in church when I was a child. Uh, you know, children's story, we used to go down front. They had fun things. They would bring, sometimes they brought little ducklings in, and they brought puppies, and, and they had balloons, and they did all kinds of fun things. But one story troubles me for many years, troubled me for many years. And we got down front, and there was an angel, not a really an angel, but it was, a, it was a, a lady with long blonde hair and a white robe with white wings, and she had a halo over her head. She had a gold clipboard and a gold pen. And as the storyteller starts telling the story, he talks about a little boy who stole a cookie, and the angel starts to write. And then a little boy who talked back to mommy, and the angel starts to write. And, and these types of things go on, and the angel's like floating around the stage, writing down, is following this little boy everywhere. And, you know, the, God sends his recording angel to follow you everywhere and write down a record of every sin you ever commit. And if you don't ask Jesus to forgive you, then those sins remain on the record books of heaven and you will have to face them one day in heaven. What does this do to a child? Does it enhance our relationship that we trust God now? Or do we start worrying about a God who is wanting to keep track and find fault so he can punish us? It leads to works. It leads to works. I began to be much more concerned about what he's writing down about me uh, than than building a relationship with him. It changed the whole focus. It was an ugly thing to teach a child. Do you not agree it's an ugly thing to teach a child? Yes. So what about the record books? Well... First off, let's start with always the center. We start with God himself. God is love. Is God loving or is God love? There's a difference between being loving and being love. They're not the same. God is love. Now, the Bible gives us a definition of what that looks like in multiple places. But one of the best is 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Wait a minute. If God is love and love keeps no record of wrongs, then why do we teach kids that he's got this little record thing going on to get you by? Well, he knows what you've done, whether you've done good or bad, just like this. You mean he doesn't actually need records to know? No, what Ben's done, he's done good or bad. Okay, so, so, you, so wait a minute, so you bring up another issue here. Well, you bring up another issue here. Does God need angels to go around to write things down in order for him to keep a record, or is his memory perfect and he knows without the angels? He knows what we do 10 years from now. But so, so the, again, the question, does God need the angels to go around and keep a record so he'll know, or does he know even if the angels don't keep a record? Okay, so the records then, pardon? Yes, yes, but the question is, for what purpose? See, there are records in heaven. There are records, but they're not what we've been told they're for. See, love keeps no record. What are they, what are they for? Well, when I was a fourth-year medical student, I was working at Erlanger. I was doing an ER rotation. And we was a helicopter crash out at Level Field. And they brought all the victims of the helicopter crash to our ER. And um, 
there was one lady who had femur fractures and pelvic fractures. And when you break the big bones like this, they will bleed out into the spaces of the muscles. She wasn't actually bleeding externally. She was bleeding internally into the tissues. But it's still just as life-threatening because the blood is leaving the, the circulation and going into the tissues. She needed blood transfusions and surgery. But she was Jehovah's Witness. And she did not believe in blood transfusions. In fact, she refused blood transfusion. And once she told us she wouldn't accept the blood transfusion, we recognize she's dying. But we can save her if she'll accept the transfusion. So we began to plead with her. Medical students pled with her. Nurses pled with her. Doctors pled with her. The hospital chaplain came in and prayed and pled with her. Actually, before she lost consciousness, the administrator and one of the hospital attorneys came down and talked with her. And we, there was somebody constantly trying to, to convince her to let us save her, give her this, this medicine. I mean, this, uh, this transfusion, until she lost consciousness. Once she lost consciousness, we didn't plead with her anymore. Not because we didn't care, but there was no point. This is a powerful metaphor to our experience here in sin. God's agencies are pleading with us, constantly pleading, pleading, pleading. Christ is pleading from heaven, the Holy Spirit, the angels. Human agencies are coming, pleading, pleading, pleading. And he continues to plead until we cross the point where we have so seared the conscience and damaged the faculties that we're beyond reach and we can't hear anymore. That's when pleading ceases. Now, every, and, and by the way, this entire time, everybody's in there talking to her. Somebody's in there writing copious notes. Copious notes are being written. I'm talking pages and reams of documentations is being done. You all in medical field know this, right? Okay. She, everybody else in this helicopter crash survived. She died. And we could have saved her, but she, she didn't. She died. Now, when the family comes in and files a lawsuit against the doctors, the healthcare team, and the hospital. You saved everybody else on that, on that helicopter, but our mother you didn't save. And she was the only person of color on that helicopter. You're a racist organization. You don't really love and care for all people in this community the same. You give out your, your healthcare treatments preferentially, and they file that lawsuit. What then comes into evidence? The records come into evidence to judge and, and, and punish this woman by? To exonerate the doctor. And the healthcare team. The medical records, the healthcare records, the, the records that the angels have been writing have been writing to show God's reliability and consistency so that at the end of time, if anyone's lost, the records will show that every person is lost by their own refusal for every intervention God has thrown at them to try and save them. So yes, records are kept, but not to judge us by. To exonerate him by. Not to punish us by. We carry the punishment of sin in our characters. We carry the punishment of sin in our minds. Our conscience gets seared. Our reason gets warped. We get twisted. And thus, when we come face to face with all truth, what will it be like in that day for a character that is so out of harmony with love to come into the presence of perfect love? Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the book was open. Also, another book was open, which was the book of life. By what we've written in the books, by what they had done. I think it's important to understand. I can turn to a variety of different texts, and I tell you, because I am well versed on this subject. When theology is interjected and severs the judgment message from the everlasting gospel, what do you think the judgment message is? Transgressors shall die. Do you think that God has to sit in judgment over transgressors? Absolutely. Really? What would happen if he didn't? Christ is the judge. And, and if we take the scripture of Christ's words, he does say, the Father judge no one, all judgment has been given to me. And then Christ himself said, what would he do with that? I don't judge you. By your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. 
So if we take the judge at his word, he says he's not going to do it. There are several texts I can turn to very quickly where Christ says he will judge you. And what does that mean? He will judge you according to the law. So what would happen if he didn't judge? The whole thing is whacked out. The breakdown here in understanding this process is there's two ways to understand God's law. One way is God imposes a law. He's the creator. He has enacted a law. And as the great imposer of the law, it's his job to enforce the law and to make sure justice is served. That's the way most Christianity sees God's law. That's a lie. The truth is, God's law of love emanates from his personhood. He is love. And all the universe is designed to operate upon the law of love. And the law of love is the foundation of God's government. And the law of love is not an enacted law. It's not a created law. It is not an imposed law. It is the law that emanates from God's very personhood. And violations of this law don't have to have enforcements against it because violations of this law naturally result in ruin and death unless the law is reconciled or restored within the believer. And I'll give you some examples of this. In Romans 1, 20, that God's divine nature and invisible qualities are seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. What is God's nature? Love. His nature is seen in what he has made. It means in creation we can see this nature of other-centered love, which is the principle of life. And we've gone through some of these before, but we have a lot of visitors, so let's go through some again. The oceans give their waters to the clouds, which rain over the land, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, flowing back to the ocean, a never-ending circle of giving, free flow giving. If, if a body separates from the water, it stagnates and everything, and it dies. We see this in a body of water called the Dead Sea, which takes but gives nothing. Uh, every breath you breathe, you give away freely carbon dioxide, and the plants give back to you oxygen. If you say, look, I don't be part of that. I'm going to violate the law of respiration. I'm going to tie a plastic bag over my head, and I'm going to keep my carbon dioxide for myself. Well, you can do that for a point, and then you're going to die. Because when you violate the law of respiration, God doesn't have to inflict a penalty upon you. The natural result of being out of harmony with the design principle of life is death. You can go, I can go all day long with this because God's design is the design of free flow, giving, and love, which all life is based upon. And you see this in, in uh, everything that God creates. The uh, electron circle around the atom, the planets circle around the sun, the solar system circles in the galaxies, the galaxies circle in the universe. And Ezekiel chapter 10 looks into heaven, sees in vision God's throne. And at the foundation of the throne, showing what the throne of God is, is built on, he sees the rotating wheel within the rotating wheel, the circle within the circle, the principle of love, the law of love is God's universe. In every living system, this is true. Um, even in our economy, for our economy to be healthy, the, the money has to be in circulation. If you take the money out of circulation, the economy dies. God tried to teach this in the Old Testament. When the sinner would confess sin on the head of the animal, he would, the sinner would then cut the circulation. The life is in the blood and the blood circles. The, the life just keeps going round and round and round until something severs the circle and then it dies. The teaching is very simple. Sin severs the circle of life resulting in death. Christ came to reverse that, to restore the circle of life back in humanity, to put the law of love, put the law on the heart and mind, which is the law of love. The Ten Commandments are simply a distillation of the great law of love, uniquely designed and added, by the way, added for this creation at Sinai. In Galatians, Paul makes that clear that the law was added, the written law, but not the eternal law, the law of love. And so we understand that there's two laws then. 
the two ways to view the law. The imposed law, which requires an imposed sovereign to impose penalties and to oppose judgments. And then the law of love, which is the natural law emanating from God, which doesn't require an imposed penalty. And it actually required God to intercede and hold at bay the consequences of severing this law. Thus, it says in Romans 3.25, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He was holding at bay. He was interceding while his son came to reconcile us back to love. And then what will happen then to those who are out of harmony, who's those whose nature are so, so solidified in selfishness? What will happen to them? Will God have to declare upon them a punishment? Or will their own condition declare it? Their own condition declares it. This is what Christ said. From your hearts, from your words, you will be justified. and your words, you will be condemned. And this is what happens in the end. And so we have this idea of an arbitrary judgment from an arbitrary judge. That is Satan's representation of God. And think it through this way. Satan says, I never said God wasn't powerful. Of course he's powerful. He's just not good. If he could just get a little grip on himself, not judge us, not punish us. If he'd just leave us alone, we could live forever in sin because there is nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. You see, and what's happened with this distortion on the judgment is we've actually become more afraid of the God who's trying to save us than the sin which is killing us. Think it through. We are more afraid to stand before the judgment seat of God than we are of the sin that is devastating us and severing us from it. We're fortunate to have a law. Yes, we are. The law is a blessing. And that law tells us what is wrong and right. You bet. Those transgressors of the law, those people who still have a nature that inclines them to transgress, the Bible makes it perfectly clear. I can turn to the third Bible verses right now. It states specifically, the transgressor of the law shall die and... Christ is the one that pronounces the judgment. And he orders his holy angels to destroy those who have not overcome their fallen nature. Yet those who <clears throat> choose to be cleansed from the nature that inclines them to transgress shall live. There is a judgment. And when you when you sever the judgment from the everlasting gospel, the entire concept of salvation is distorted. Because people that think they're saved simply because they acknowledge that a guy named Jesus Christ Lived and died 2,000 years ago. So it's your position that if Christ wouldn't pronounce, send his angels to kill those people, that they would live forever in sin? It's a warning, as he's always given people. So if God wouldn't send his angels, they would continue to live in sin? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a fact. It is a warning that those transgressors shall die. Why do they die? Because they're transgressors. So is the source of death sin, or is the source of death God? The source of death is... And the judgment, okay, those people who refuse to be separated from transgression, God terminates their lives. So again, now we have a version where God is the killer and death comes out from God. It doesn't come out from sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We have another version that is common in, the, in Christianity that the problem isn't sin. The problem is God who must kill sinners. And now God is an executioner and a meter out of death. And that is a distortion of his character. Yes. Two days ago, um, I got an MRI scan on a young child that showed that the child was going to die unless they had something done to them. The MRI scanner is equivalent to the law. That's exactly right. 
The law shows what is out of character and reveals to us where we deviate from what is ideal and what is healthy. And so I will not have to kill this kid if the kid does nothing, if his parents do nothing. His condition is terminal. Our condition is? Our condition without Christ, is it eternal life or is it terminal? God doesn't have to execute us. If he does nothing, we all die. The wages of sin is death. There's a God who is nothing but love and wants to save and heal and restore. And there's another God who wants to kill you if you don't, you know, get whatever it is you have to get. You know, the, the law is a mirror. If we look at the mirror, it tells us what we are. And if we break the mirror, we see uh, who we are. So uh, by saying uh, somebody dies because they break the mirror, it's yeah, I like that. Uh, he says that the law is a mirror, and we look in and sees our defects. If you try and break the mirror, it doesn't take away the defects you still have. Okay? So, that's nicely said. Yeah. Tim, this morning I, I read a uh, scripture in, in church, and it was from Psalm 32. And the, the chapter or the psalm is entitled, The Joy of Forgiveness. And really what it does is it focuses on the positive power of connecting with God. David said in the first seven verses that while I was silent, while I kept the status quo and stonewalled God, my I wasted away. My strength left me like, like the heat from the heat of the sun. But when he asked forgiveness and when he opened his heart to God in a positive way, God came and gave him strength gave him the power to overcome. If I go around here thinking that all these people in here are being judged, and I just really don't want to say anything about God's judgment on them, I'm keeping silent. Because I don't want to interfere. I don't want to I don't want to sort of look like I'm trying to overcome their power of choice. But if I believe these people, you know, can have a connection with God that will just magnetically draw them to His love. I'm willing to, I'm willing to interact with that. Let's move on to a couple more things in the lesson. Why there's such division in the church? Why is there such unity? The question in well, Monday's lesson is talking about value and members being valued in the church. And I asked the question, why is, why is it that some are unable to be valued in the church. And we don't have time to read it, but there, there's, there's really some people who are never going to be able to be valued in the church. And the reason for that, as I see it, Matthew 13, 24 through 30, Jesus tells the parable, and I don't have time to read it because of our time is short, but the parable of the sower, where there was good seed and there were tares sown in the field. And the tares were sown by an enemy. And the field, of course, represents the church. And there, in the church, we have both the good followers of Christ, and we have the tares sown by the enemy, both in the church. And I'm just going to read one paragraph from Christ's Object Lessons, page 71. It says the following, He that sowed the good seed is the son of man. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The good seed represents those who are born of the word of God, the truth. The tares represent a class who are the fruit or embodiment of error of false principles. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Neither God nor his angels ever sowed a seed that would produce a tear. The tares are always sown by Satan, the enemy of God and man. Now get this. By bringing into the church those who bear Christ's name while they deny his character. 
the wicked one causes that God shall be dishonored, the work of salvation misrepresented, and souls imperiled. So the key to distinguishing, to me, those wheat from the tares are whether they hold to the truth about the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, or whether they put this other picture out there of God. That is a huge demarcation between the wheat and the tares in the church. Now, what do we do when we discover there are tares in the church? How are we to act if we are wheat? We leave them alone until the judgment. Beautifully said. We leave them alone until the judgment. Why? Yes, because there are good people in the church that we can't read hearts and minds, and some of the tares in the church have people that are wheat that love them. And if you attack one of the tares, the people who are the wheat, the good people, God may not understand, and they may be uprooted and leave the church in hurt and bitter anyway. So, so yes, that's what we do. We leave them. Because we cannot read the secret intents of the heart. But can we do something to improve the situation? Can we do something to increase the concentration of wheat and decrease the concentration of tares in our church? Love them. Love them. Because by love, what's awakened? Love. love. Yes, we love them. What would that look like in the church today? <laughs> A secret board meeting to vote out certain members? And the character is denied when a person claims to be a Christian yet continues to transgress. He's a hypocrite. And that's the very specific nature of the light of the sins. He has works, but they're works of his own. They're not the result of the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The works become a natural byproduct of his character, just like it was with Christ. And let, let's take that thought. And let's imagine we had a person, I don't know, maybe named Annas or Caiaphas. And... Uh, and they uh, were transported to 2009 and, and changed their name to Bob or Joe and applied for membership here in this church, living the life that they live. Would they meet any objections coming into this church? No. Or would their lives reveal such good standards of living? I mean, they are just so obedient. They're such good Sabbath keepers, and they've got such a good diet practice, and, and, and they pay their tithe, double tithe, and they strain the gnats out of their food. And I mean, they are just so good, obedient children, aren't they? Yes, and we can be so confident they would never misrepresent Jesus in the church, would they? Yet, they would crucify him. See, this idea that we can look to people and say, uh, we, are, we are misrepresenting the character of Christ, because maybe someone, oh, I don't know, like Mary Magdala, who struggled with some issues in her life. Who do you think was doing a better job of representing Christ? Mary Magdala or Caiaphas and Annas? Mary. Who would be the one we would say is the misrepresentative of Christ today? Mary. We are twisted because we have accepted a false concept of God. We've accepted a false idea of his law. We don't understand the law of love. Mary understood the law of love, which is law of mercy, law of grace, law of of forgiveness, law of of humbleness, the law of meekness. There's nothing to say that Mary continued to practice her after she received Oh, she didn't. But for a while, 
she was struggling. It says seven times she went back to it before she was freed, but the whole time she was struggling with the victory, she was always coming back to Christ. She always was trusting Him to be freed from a problem that she was struggling with. And so that whole journey, while she... And the metaphor I like, guys, once you've come to accept Christ, you get on an up escalator. Now, once you're on the up escalator, because Christ is the one healing, restoring, regenerating, and creating, we don't fix our own hearts. Once you're on that up escalator, you may stumble and fall. When you fall on an up escalator, which way are you going? You're still going up. Okay? Escalator is a great metaphor because when you're on that escalator, can you run up the escalator? Well, you can help the Lord along the way and you can accelerate that process. Can you stand still and not do much? Can you run down the escalator? Think about your Christian journey. Haven't there been times when you've been on fire with the Lord running up that escalator? Haven't been there times when you've been kind of blasé and just standing there? Haven't there been times when you've slipped and fall? And haven't there been a few times where maybe you were a little bit rebellious and going the other way? But until you jump over to the other escalator, you're still in that saving relation. God is still working to heal your heart. And one of the problems we have, we have this legalistic model. It's always behavior-based. Um, you know, I'm saved as long as I'm doing all the right things. And if I make a mistake today, until I ask forgiveness for that, I'm lost. And I have to, I'm jumping back and forth between actually. That is a distortion of the reality. When we come to Jesus Christ, we accept a new heart and a right spirit. All our old habit patterns, all our ingrained neural circuits are not rewired that day. But when we trust God, over the course of time, rewiring of our neural circuits takes place. But in that process, there will be uh, moments of lapse. But the, the difference is, when the converted person has a moment of lapse, their heart is grieved at the lapse. They regret it. They're on their knees, Father, what a, what a wretched man and I, who will save me from this body. I can't stand the fact that I lost my cool in that conversation. What is wrong with me? Give me a new heart and a right spirit, Lord. The unsaved person, when they have that same experience and lose their cool, they go, yeah, that guy deserved everything he got. You look at him, da, 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 da. And they make excuses and blame the other person. There's no repentance. There's no heart sorrow for it. So it's not that the saved are free from all mistakes, but as they make mistakes, they're on their knees with, 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 with their heart open to God for transformation and growth, so they're less likely to make that mistake again the next time. And that's what we see in the life of Mary. She made seven, seven trips back, but each time her heart was sick over it and she wanted to be freed. And eventually those neural circuits were rewired. The Holy Spirit transformed her. She was a new person and he freed her from that. But she was in a saving relationship the entire time. Christ said her sins were forgiven. And that's the point that I was referring to. Notwithstanding that it's just as legalistic to say that I'm saved simply because I confess Jesus Christ. And I'm on the next heading up. As is that a person can say I'm saved because I'm doing certain things. Legalism is man-made salvation. It's not an individual attempting to obey God's law perfectly. Otherwise, Christ would be the biggest legalist that ever lived. Legalism is simply man-made salvation. That's simple. There's another version that's more commonly taught of legalism. He's right. There is a version of man-made. There's another version. And that's what I call heavenly legalism. Um, that heavenly legalism is God was required to execute his son on the cross in our place to pay the payment of our legal debt. That payment now is offered in our behalf. You accept it. That payment is applied to your record book in heaven. Your record book is stamped with legal pardon. That is heavenly legalism. That is not the plan of salvation. It's a different version, but it's still legalism. It's forensic. Anyway, I wanted to close with our Tuesday's lesson. We don't have time to read the paragraph, but it's talking about people getting involved and having a role and that God has a role for each of us and about how Satan obstructs God's role for you in the church. And uh, one of the ways he obstructs, of course, is by getting us to fulfill roles that we're not called to fulfill. Is that not true? 
Have you ever been called to do something that really wasn't your calling? Somebody on the, when I say called, called by the nominating committee, but not called by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And when we accept those things, we often obstruct the, the, the work in our own life that the Holy Spirit would do for us. So one of the things to fulfill God's role in our life is to understand what we are gifted for and what God is calling us to and what he's not calling us to. Because Satan would love, if you imagine a coach on a football team, Satan would love to take the church and have the quarterback play defensive back and have the, the kicker play uh, you know, the, the lineman. And he would love to put everybody out of position so that nobody's really equipped to do what they need to do. He would love to do that because then things would be in chaos. And so we need to be aware of what our true equipment is and where we can serve God best. With that in regard, our class would love to have some volunteers who feel called to help in various ways. <laughs> to help organize some potlucks for our class and get together if you feel called to do that. Or to help spread the good news, to share this message with people. Invite your friends and family to join us. We have a weekly radio program that this class sponsors to give donation to that weekly radio program. It's on Life Talk Radio. It costs $600 a month to keep that show on the air. So we need people that would like to volunteer to support that. To initiate a community Bible study in your home to share this message. We need people to uh, um, have ideas about how we can be better at taking this truth about God to the world. So we talk to the Lord and see what he would have you do and how we can be better uh, organized as a group to, to share this wonderful message about God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the truth about you as revealed in your Son. We thank you that you have given us the freedom to think these things through for ourselves. We thank you for the scriptures which guide and lead us in these things, and the Holy Spirit which enlightens. We pray now that you will pour your spirit out to enlighten our minds, to transform us, to take all that Christ has achieved, and write that in our hearts and minds, your perfect law of love and your perfect character, so that it's no longer our fear-based, self-centered selves living, but a love-based Christ living within. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.